This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love ad free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Perth is the capital and largest city in Western Australia. Captain James Sterling founded Perth in 1829 as the administrative centre of the Swan River Colony. It was named after Perth, Scotland. Unlike my home in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, where it's the rainy season nine months out of the year, Perth has beach weather nine months out of the year. It's home to the largest inner-city park in the world, bigger than New York Central Park and London's Hyde Park. Kings Park sits right beside the Swan River and is home to a war memorial, a tennis club, a reservoir, and a botanic garden. Eric Edgar Cook was born into a life of violence and abuse. A childhood of being bullied by his father and classmates created a helplessness inside of him that he needed to rid himself of. He wanted to feel more powerful, and the only way he thought he could do that was by taking life. This is Monsters. Australia Day is celebrated annually on January 26th. It marks the 1788 landing of the first fleet at Sydney Cove and the raising of the Union flag. On that day in 1963, the city of Perth, Western Australia, was celebrating the day like any other year. The city was considered a safe place and many people slept with their doors unlocked or even open, sometimes sleeping outside on the front or back porch in an effort to escape the summer heat. Through the 50s, property crime had increased in the city, but murders were virtually unheard of. That would all change the day after Australia Day in 1963. 
Just before midnight on the 26th, Nicholas August and Rowena Reeves were parked in a secluded area and having champagne together. Nick was a married businessman and he was having an affair with Rowena, who was a bartender. While sitting in the car celebrating the holiday, they noticed a man off in the distance watching them. They tried to ignore him at first, but eventually Nick rolled down the window, threw a bottle at the man, and yelled at him. The man responded by raising a rifle and shooting at the car. When Rowena saw the gun, she pushed Nick's head down, essentially saving his life. Instead of hitting him in the head, the bullet hit Nick in the neck, exited his body, and then hit Rowena in the wrist. Nick was able to speed away, and though the man shot at the car again, he missed either of its occupants. They were able to get to the hospital, and both survived their wounds. The man who shot at them would turn out to be Eric Edgar Cook, who decided to take out his anger over his life of being abused and bullied on anyone he happened to run into. After Nick and Rowena sped away, Eric walked to Broom Street where he had parked the car he had stolen earlier that day. As he was heading to the car, he saw an apartment building and one of the units had an open door. 29-year-old Brian Weir was asleep inside and had the doors open in order to let air flow through the unit and help keep him cool. It's the Southern Hemisphere, so it was summer and extremely hot in Western Australia. Eric walked into the apartment where he shot Brian point-blank in the head. The impact threw Brian's body back and he ended up with his head dangling from the bed, but he didn't immediately die. Some believe that having his head hanging over the side of the bed allowed the blood to drain onto the floor instead of into his lungs. Eric either didn't know that Brian was still alive or didn't care, but either way, he turned around and left the apartment. Eric went back out to the stolen car and drove away. He stopped on Vincent Street in Nedlands and started prowling around, looking for another victim. 19-year-old John Sturkey was a university student working on a degree in agricultural sciences. He lived at a boarding house with some other students, and due to the heat, John had chosen to sleep on the back porch. Eric walked up to him and shot him point-blank in the head before walking away. John's roommate woke up and heard a gurgling sound. When he investigated, he found John with a bullet wound to the head. He called an ambulance, and John was rushed to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead upon arrival. Eric walked to the next street over, Louise Street, ejecting the spent casing from his rifle as he walked. He went to a random house and rang the doorbell. Then he hit off to the side of the door. 55-year-old George Walmsley was a retired grocer who couldn't understand who would be at his door at this hour. When the man answered the door, Eric fired one shot which hit George in the head. By the time George's wife and daughter found him lying on the front porch, Eric was gone. George was rushed to the hospital where doctors operated on him, trying to save his life, but they were unsuccessful. After running from the Walmsley residence, Eric returned to his stolen car and drove to the Narrows Bridge that spans the Swan River near downtown Perth. He stopped the car, dropped the rifle into the river, and continued driving. He ditched the stolen car and then went back home like nothing had happened. The following day, Brian didn't show up to a shift at Swanbourne Nedland's Surf Lifesaving Club. Brian was an accountant, but he was training at the Lifesaving Club, which has volunteers patrol the Swanbourne Beach to provide lifesaving services. Len Bath was on the same shift as Brian, and he went to his house to see what was up. When he found Brian still alive, clinging to life, he called an ambulance and Brian was rushed to the hospital. He underwent surgery but slipped into a coma afterwards. 
He was in a coma for six months before he woke up, but he struggled for the rest of his life. He was blind in one eye, deaf in one ear, paralyzed on the right side of his body, and couldn't speak. In September of 1965, a bullet fragment in Brian's brain would shift, causing a massive seizure which ended his life. Eric left nothing behind that would link him to the murders. There were no witnesses, no fingerprints, and no clues. He used a stolen car and a stolen rifle that couldn't be linked to him in any way. Eric had a criminal record, but only for burglary and car theft, and there was no reason to think that he went on a shooting spree all of a sudden. Fear in the area caused people to start locking their doors and bringing weapons to bed with them. Before retiring for the night, they would grab a rifle or a baseball bat. Area residents would call the police about any little noise they heard, but when the police arrived, they wouldn't open the door for them. They were afraid that it wasn't really the police. In an attempt to gather more information, the police had Charles and Rowena react to the shooting. An officer stood in the same place that Eric stood and used a mop handle to simulate a rifle. Outside of Rowena remembering that the man had an angry-looking mouth, they didn't learn anything that would lead to a suspect. The newspaper wrote an article about the reenactment and released the names of the only two witnesses. This put both Charles and Rowena in danger of having the killer come after them. Fortunately, that would never happen. Eric Edgar Cook was born on February 25, 1931, to Vivian Thomas and Christine Cook. He was born with a cleft lip and palate, which made his father hate him more than he already did. Vivian and Christine were forced to get married due to the pregnancy. Vivian was not ready to have children, and the birth of Eric forced him into a life he hadn't wanted at the time. Well, maybe you should have used protection. Just saying. Seems more reasonable than blaming the baby. Vivian and Christine would go on to have two more children, both daughters, and they seemed to not suffer the abuses that Eric would suffer. Maybe it was because they were planned, but it's impossible to say for sure now. Vivian was an alcoholic and was violent and abusive to both his wife and son. From a young age, Eric was physically and mentally abused by Vivian. Most of the time the man's rage was directed at Eric from the start, but sometimes the young boy would become the target for trying to stop his father from abusing his mother. Not only did Vivian despise Eric for forcing him to get married, but he saw his birth defect as meaning he was damaged and therefore no good to anybody. Eric had corrective surgery when he was three months old and another surgery when he was three and a half years old, and it left him with only a scar, but the damage was already done in Vivian's eyes. When Eric was old enough, he would escape his house at night by either wandering the neighborhood or hiding under the house to stay away from his father's wrath. Of course, if he was able to escape the abuse of his father, the kids at school made up for it. Being a child with a facial deformity meant he was constantly bullied at school. This made Eric start trying to gain the respect of other students in other ways. He tried stealing money out of the teacher's purse, but was caught and expelled. He left school at 14, got a job, and stayed away from his family by spending time outside burglarizing other homes. He would try to impress other kids by having money, which he got from stealing. Eric went through five schools, being bullied anywhere he went before finally dropping out. By this time, Vivian's alcoholism was so bad that he wasn't able to work, and the family was struggling to keep up with just the money Christine made from cleaning houses. Eric had a few jobs and also got caught stealing a few more times. He stole a watch to impress the boys at a local surf life-saving club, but was eventually caught. 
During his late teens, he was involved in a number of other petty crimes. Theft, vandalism, peeping, and stealing women's underwear from clotheslines. He began developing a hatred of people, especially those who felt had wronged him, and some of them legitimately had wronged him. He was bullied because of his cleft lip scar, which wasn't okay, but other things weren't quite as serious. He set fire to a church where he hadn't been allowed to join the choir. He served 18 months in prison for that one. In 1949, Eric was caught breaking into a house and he was linked to other burglaries and was sent back to prison. Anytime he was arrested, he was a model inmate, always following orders and never causing trouble. Police in the area got to know him well over the years and began calling him Cookie, knowing him as a local burglar and mischief maker, something that would keep them from connecting him to the brutal murders years later. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Christmas is the season of giving, but it can be difficult to know who on your list wants what. Save yourself the guesswork by giving the gift of choice. Whether you're buying for the foodie, fashionista, or homebird of the family, they'll love a Dunn Stores gift card. They can choose from everything we have in store and online, from fashion to homewares to groceries. It's the perfect choice to make this Christmas. Visit dunnstores.com for details. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. When Eric was 21, he joined the Australian Army. But three months later, his criminal record was discovered and he was discharged. Afterward, he got a job as a truck driver and soon he met a young woman named Sarah Levine, who went by Sally. She was a waitress who had moved to Australia from Great Britain. The couple began dating and soon Sally was pregnant with their first child. On November 14, 1953, at the age of 22, Eric married Sally, who was 18 years old at the time. The couple would go on to have seven kids together, despite Eric continuing to go out at nights, burgling and stealing cars. Back then, people regularly left their cars unlocked with the keys inside. It was easy for him to steal a car, use it as needed, and then return it to the exact same spot. Many times, the owner wouldn't even know the vehicle had been taken. He was arrested for auto theft in 1955 and released about a year later. He would disappear for days at a time and wouldn't tell Sally where he went. When Eric came home on January 29, 1959, with scratches on his face, Sally understandably asked him what happened. Eric explained that one of their sons had scratched him while they were playing, something that seemed reasonable enough. What Sally didn't know was that Eric's crimes were escalating. At first, Eric would go out and run people down with a car, usually one that had been stolen. He ran down seven women, starting with Nell Schneider in September of 1958. He just wanted to hurt someone, and when he saw her riding her bicycle, he sped up and hit her. She flew over the car and landed in the street. The bike stuck to the car, but when he took a turn, it fell off and he kept going. Nell woke up in the hospital. She was a 26-year-old Dutch immigrant and mother of two. 
The head injury caused by the accident nearly killed her, and though she survived, she suffered major seizures for two years after the attack and would continue having minor seizures. In November of 1958, Eric attacked two women who would end up surviving the encounter. On the 25th, he snuck into the home of Molly McLeod and attacked her, though there's not much in the way of details. Eric would later confess to this crime. On the 27th, Kathy Bellis was the victim of a hit-and-run, which Eric confessed to later. On January 29, 1959, at 2.30 a.m., 33-year-old divorcee Panina Berkman was asleep in her apartment. Eric snuck into the unit and took a knife from the kitchen. When he went into Panina's bedroom, he knocked something over and it woke her up. As soon as she saw the intruder, she began screaming. Eric grabbed the woman and she scratched his face, something that would definitely leave skin under her fingernails. But unfortunately, this would happen long before DNA would be able to be used to identify an attacker. Eric first stabbed Panina in the face with a knife and then stabbed her in the heart. She was still alive when Eric fled the scene, but she would quickly succumb to her injuries. A neighbor, Joan Evans, was awoken by the scream and she woke her husband to tell him about it, but he brushed it off as a bad dream and told her to go back to sleep. She would later tell investigators that she heard the milkman outside and then heard a car drive away, but didn't think it sounded like the milkman's vehicle. On August 8th, Alex Donkin was violently attacked while she was asleep in her bed. She survived and there aren't many details available about this attack either. On December 20th, 1959, 21-year-old Jillian Brewer was asleep in her bed when Eric stole a hatchet from a nearby property and crept into her house. His presence woke her up, and when she saw him, she started to scream. Eric struck her multiple times with the hatchet, killing her. With Jillian dead in her bedroom, Eric stole a lemonade out of the refrigerator and went outside to enjoy the beverage on the porch. When he was done drinking the lemonade, he went back inside the house and grabbed a pair of scissors. Then he hacked at Jillian's corpse with the scissors before disappearing into the night. The police had no leads in the murder, and 18 months later, when 19-year-old Daryl Beamish was arrested and pleaded guilty to minor sexual offenses, the police said, Hey, this guy's a sexual pervert. He must have killed Jillian Brewster. They literally had nothing else connecting him to the crime. Daryl just so happened to be a deaf mute, so it was much harder for him to defend himself. Police finally browbeat him into a confession, and he's convicted of the murder. He was originally sentenced to death, but his sentence was eventually commuted to life in prison. Eric now has no reason to worry about being arrested for that crime, because now a man who didn't commit the crime is being punished for it. Eric can continue committing crimes without anybody suspecting him. 19-year-old Glennis Peake was run down on April 9, 1960, as she walked home from a dance. She heard the roar of the engine and tried to get out of the way, but Eric swerved to make sure he hit her. When she hit the ground, she was still conscious and knew she had to get away because the road was a dead end and she knew he had to come back. She crawled through a lumber yard and when she got to the back door of her house, she fell inside the back door and told her parents what had happened. She was taken to the hospital where they discovered that she had a broken back. Glennis would later learn that the man that had run her down was somebody that she knew. He drove through the neighborhood frequently and had given her a ride on multiple occasions. 
Glennis said that he seemed real nice, and he talked to her about one of his children who had a developmental disability. On May 13, 1960, Eric ran down Jill Connolly with his car, seriously injuring her, but she managed to survive. On the 20th, he ran down three young women on scooters. Maureen Rogers, Georgina Pittman, and Teresa Zagami were all injured but survived. Anne Melvin awoke to Eric in her bedroom trying to strangle her on March 3, 1962. She attempted to fight back, but he overpowered her and sexually assaulted her. Eric then fled the residence without further harm to the young woman. On December 29, 1962, Peggy Fleury was in her bed when Eric snuck in and sexually assaulted her. She managed to get out a scream which alerted her parents, but Eric escaped before they could get to their daughter's room. Eric had punched her in the face, leaving her with a black eye. Eric soon became so thirsty for violence against other people, any other people, that he set off on January 26, 1963, and carried out the worst shooting spree in Perth. When he was done, with two people dead and three injured, he ditched the rifle and car and authorities had no clue that he was involved in the shootings. On February 10, 1963, Eric saw 17-year-old Rosemary Anderson walking down the street and he ran her down with his car. John Button had been celebrating his 19th birthday at his parents' house with Rosemary, but they got into an argument and she told him she was going to walk home. He got into his car and drove next to her for a few minutes, trying to apologize, but she wouldn't get back into the car, so he let her walk off. He spent a few minutes in his car smoking a cigarette, but had second thoughts and started trying to find her. Soon, he found her lying on the side of the road with a bad laceration on her forehead and blood pouring out of it. He put her in his car and rushed her to the hospital where she died. He gave a statement to the police, but they threw it out and began asking him why he did it. They believed that the young couple had gotten into an argument, and in a rage, John ran her down with his car, killing her. They eventually forced a confession out of John, and he later explained that he believed that, since there was no evidence, they wouldn't be able to use his confession. Being young and naive, he didn't realize that the confession became the evidence. He was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 10 years in prison with hard labor. On February 16th, three weeks after the spree killings, Eric set out to either murder or just burglarize. It isn't clear what his plan was at the beginning of the night. At 2 o'clock in the morning at an apartment complex in West Perth, a back door to one of the units was unlocked and Eric accepted that as an invitation to go inside and steal some valuables. Two women lived in the apartment and they were sound asleep in bedrooms on opposite sides of the unit. When Eric entered one of the rooms, he saw 24-year-old Lucy Madrill asleep in her bed. He started to look around for valuables, but he made too much noise and she woke up. He quickly grabbed her, pushed her onto the bed, and started to manually strangle her until she lost consciousness. Then he took a cord from a lamp and wrapped it around her neck. He used the cord to strangle her to death. Then he pulled the body from the bed to the floor and raped the corpse. When he was finished, he dragged Lucy's body outside onto the neighbor's lawn. He found an empty whiskey bottle and he used it to sexually assault her again before putting it in her arms. The neighbors found her body later that morning and police investigated but didn't find any evidence. They also didn't connect this murder to the murders that happened on January 26th, so the people in the city became even more scared because now there were multiple murderers out there. 
People started locking their doors and windows, and women stopped going out. Eric spent four months without any known murders. It's unknown how many people he may have run down on the road, but on June 15th, he snuck into the apartment of Carmel Reed and stabbed her in the chest with her own umbrella. Then he punched her in the face and the two began to struggle. The commotion woke up her neighbor, who scared Eric away. The stab wound was not deep enough to cause any significant damage, and Carmel survived the attack. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash bestmusic to get Live One Plus now. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. August 10th, 1963, 18-year-old Shirley McLeod was babysitting for the Dowd family. She spent the evening studying and listening to music while the baby was asleep, and soon she also fell asleep in front of her books on the couch. Eric entered the house and crept up the stairs to find the young woman sleeping in the living room. He raised a rifle, also stolen, and shot her point-blank in the head. The Dowds came home and found her, first thinking that she was just asleep, but when they finally saw the bullet wound, they called the police. The police believe that this murder was carried out by the same spree shooter from January, though the ballistics proved that the gun was different. Investigators found a fingerprint at the scene, but after putting it in the system, it was unidentified. They began going door-to-door asking anyone over the age of 14 to volunteer their fingerprints, but it didn't lead them to a match. Not long after the murder of Shirley McLeod, an older couple went out for a walk, and as they passed some flowers, the woman bent down to pick one. When she did, she found a rifle lying within the plants. They notified the police who test-fired the rifle and found that it matched the bullet that killed Shirley. They found the way the rifle was hidden in the plants odd and had a hunch that the killer might come back for the weapon. They put a similar rifle back exactly where they found it, tied to a piece of fishing line, which is like out of a cartoon, but I guess they wanted to stop him from running off with it when they approached him. Then they started watching the area around the clock. For two weeks, authorities sat in that spot and absolutely nothing happened. Then on September 1st, 1963, at 1.30 a.m., a car pulled up to the area where the rifle was hidden. Eric got out of the car and scanned the area. Then he walked into the bushes and went for the weapon. The police approached him and he tried to claim that he was just taking a leak, but they knew he was lying. When he was searched, they found that he was wearing a pair of women's gloves and a pair of women's underwear was in his pocket. Authorities found a shell casing inside his car that matched the one that was test-fired from the rifle. He was charged with the murder of Shirley McLeod, but authorities hadn't connected him to the other crimes. Once he was charged, he openly confessed to murdering Shirley, but wouldn't speak beyond that. Once they began to put the pieces together that he was also the Australia Day shooter, they knew they needed to get him to confess because he had left no evidence behind in those crimes. 
The detective sat him down and explained that he was going to get the death penalty for killing Shirley, so he might as well confess to his other crimes. They told him that he could either go to the gallows as a man or a dog. They also reminded him of how this was affecting his wife and children and how it would be easier for them if he just confessed. Eric Cook confessed to eight murders, 14 attempted murders, and more than 250 burglaries. He had an almost perfect memory of all of his crimes. He rattled off specific details of each crime, like the exact amount of change he had stolen from a purse. Over the next three weeks, investigators took Eric all around town where he pointed out all of the details of his crimes. He took investigators to the Narrows Bridge and pointed out exactly where he dropped the first rifle. Divers were able to locate the weapon. Two of the murders that Eric confessed to were that of Jillian Brewer and Rosemary Anderson, murders that two other people were serving time for. Despite the fact that Eric had information about the crimes that nobody but the killer could have, the police said that he was lying in order to prolong his trial. Eric said that there was lemonade and ginger ale in Jillian's kitchen, and that he put the empty lemonade bottle back with the others. Jillian's mother said that there was an empty lemonade bottle with the drinks. He also said that he had been stalking Jillian and had previously stolen a key, which he had hidden behind an air conditioning unit outside. On the night of the murder, the door was unlocked so he didn't need the key, and Jillian's mother said that they did find a key behind the air conditioning unit. Despite this, Daryl and John remained in prison. At his trial, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, and his lawyer claimed that he was schizophrenic. The lawyer claimed that Eric's horrible upbringing, along with several childhood head injuries, made his client unable to tell right from wrong. The judge ordered Eric to be evaluated by a psychiatrist who rejected the claim of schizophrenia. The doctor reported that he found no signs of mental illness. Family members of the victims said they saw Eric in the courtroom joking and smiling. They said it was hard to watch him show so little remorse for the lives he had destroyed. After three days of trial, Eric Cook was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Though Eric had the right to appeal the death sentence, he chose not to. He instructed his lawyers not to file an appeal and said that he was ready to pay the price for his actions. While in prison, awaiting execution, Eric was a model prisoner. He stayed out of trouble, but he did have one mission. He wanted to help Daryl Beamish and John Button who were serving sentences for a crime he had committed. He was frustrated that the authorities didn't believe him as he had no reason to lie. He even went to the appeals court once to testify on behalf of Daryl Beamish, but that appeal was still denied. His wife, Sally, visited him while in prison because she felt that's what a good wife would do. She eventually asked him why he committed murder, and he told her that it was so he could feel the power of God. It was the only reason he would ever give for committing eight murders and attempting to kill 14 more. On October 25, 1964, Eric Cook had his last meal, visited with his wife, and got a good night's sleep. The next morning, he was given new clothes and placed into a holding cell right next to the gallows. A priest entered the cell and prayed with Eric, and when the priest asked if he had anything else to say, Eric swore on a Bible that he killed Jillian and Rosemary. He told the priest that he believed that if he paid for his sins, he would be able to see his family again in heaven. At 8 o'clock in the morning, he was taken to the gallows and hanged. Eric Cook was the last person to be hanged in Western Australia. 
He was buried in the prison cemetery above the body of child killer Martha Rendell, who was the last woman to be hanged in Western Australia in 1909. When Daryl Beamish filed an appeal after Eric's confession to killing Gillian Brewer, Eric was brought into court to testify. The judge dismissed his testimony, claiming that Eric was an unscrupulous liar. But why would the judge think that? Eric had confessed to all of his crimes, and there was no reason to believe he was lying. It benefited Eric in no way to lie. At the same time, John Button was also trying to appeal his conviction based on Eric's confession. Like Daryl, his appeals were all denied. This is because the criminal justice system in most of the world believes it can't be wrong. Not like they're always right, but that if they are wrong, they can't admit it or it will muddy the waters of countless other cases. If they admit that they got this one conviction wrong, then every other criminal who was tried in that court, by that judge, that prosecutor, or was investigated by that detective, will then file an appeal and all get out of prison. So the criminal justice system does everything it can to refuse it has ever made a mistake. And that's just for any conviction. But John's conviction was so full of flaws and withheld evidence, it actually would have made a good case for any other convict who had been convicted in that court to present an appeal. John's car, a 1962 Simca, had front-end damage that investigators claimed was from hitting Rosemary. But it was revealed that three weeks prior to Rosemary's death, John had reported having an accident and listed the damage as being caused by that accident. How would he know that exact damage would happen three weeks later, I wonder? The prosecutor claimed that that information was irrelevant. Then, the doctor that treated Rosemary said that her injuries didn't match the damage to the Simca. An expert in pedestrian and vehicle accidents agreed with the doctor. Again, irrelevant. Once Eric confessed, a test was done where a dummy was struck by both a 1962 Simca and a 1962 Holden, the car Eric claimed to be driving that night. The injuries and bruising pattern were consistent with the Holden, but not the Simca. The front ends of the cars were different and would have left completely different bruising patterns. Despite that evidence, the court wouldn't budge. John was released on parole after serving five years for a crime he didn't commit. Daryl was released on parole after serving 15 years for a crime he didn't commit. In 2002, the Court of Appeals quashed John's conviction, and the following year he received $460,000. He ended up running the Western Australian Innocence Project, working towards freeing people who had been wrongly convicted. Daryl's conviction was overturned by the Court of Appeals in 2005. In 2011, 50 years after he had been wrongfully convicted, Daryl was given $425,000 by the Western Australian government. Eric Cook was born into a world of hatred and abuse, and he allowed that to push him down a path of violence. He did rob a lot of people, but this never seemed to be the motive for his murders. It seemed that Eric just wanted to hurt people. Ending someone's life made him feel powerful, and for someone who spent most of his life with no power, that feeling was intoxicating. He wanted to feel like God, but ended up acting like a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter, or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233.
or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Okay, so, presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now CERTA. Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CERTAIreland.ie. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
Chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.